Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. And we're going to look, Lord willing, at the first nine verses tonight. <clears throat> I've divided it into two sections, verses one through nine, and the next time that I teach, Lord willing, will be three weeks. The next two weeks, Dan will be teaching. Next week, I will be in Israel. I could mail it in, but it's better for Dan to teach. Uh, We get back the following Friday, but we arrive into Newark at, if I recollect, I think 4.30 in the morning. Um, We go through customs. We go through passport control. Then we go get another flight. We get into Raleigh, I think, um, 9 to 10 in the morning. And if you've ever flown overseas, your body is out of kilter. So, so we probably won't be here. Cheryl said, I've got to make the dessert. No, she's not making the dessert. Um, but I'm not preparing a message that night. So, so Dan is going to teach the next two night, week Friday nights, which will bring us into then, when I'm back in Hebrews chapter 10, the first uh, Friday in November, whatever that uh, Friday is. So, next two weeks will be Dan. Dan will continue his uh, journey through John, right? Yep. So, and, uh, and, you know, it's been so long, Dan, you should give him a quiz, you know, to make sure that they really understand what you've covered over the last three years that you teach every six months or so. Okay, we're going to do Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 9. Uh, what these verses do, as well as 10 through 18, uh, gives the reasons about the priesthood and sacrifice of Jesus, why Jesus is the better priest, the better sacrifice. Uh, he is the fulfillment, and, and it ties around Yom Kippur, it ties around the Day of Atonement, uh, which, biblically speaking, is probably not that the other holidays aren't important, all the feast days are important, certainly God gave them, uh, but for the nation, probably the, the height of the, the holy days uh, would be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's even looked at that way uh, in the Jewish world today. There may be more people who celebrate Passover because you get this great meal, you can look for the Afikoman. Uh, but for importance, there's probably no more important uh, holy day than the Day of Atonement. Uh, and that's even down uh, to this day. So that's what it's tying around uh, here and why Jesus is the better priest and the better sacrifice in verses 1 through 18. So he is the fulfillment of the Yom Kippur sacrifice. Um, somebody's stomach is bothering him. Um, 
He is the fulfillment of the Yom Kippur. That's Bob back there again. So, so how is how is Donna's mom doing? Okay, I figured we'd stop for if it's a test. Okay. Um, okay. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Um, he is the he, he Jesus is the fulfillment of the Yom Kippur sacrifice. Uh, the Yom Kippur sacrifice was for the nation. It repeated every year, which we're going to see. Um, Jesus, his sacrifice was for the nation, yes, but was for also the entire world. And it was not a repeatable sacrifice. Uh, one of the key words that we're going to find in this chapter, which we saw in the last chapter as well, at the end, is once or one time. He died once for the sins of the world. And so he is the full he, he is the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur being the picture, the illustration, the type, Jesus being the anti-type. So when we look at these four verses, the, these 18 verses, there are four reasons why Jesus sacrificed the best sacrifice. Number one is going to deal with the futility of the Mosaic law and, 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 and the sacrifices under it. Secondly, the fitness of Jesus' sacrifice, that it was, it was proper, it was good, it was fit, it met the need, that type of thing. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, the next time we ultimately get involved in this chapter, in three weeks, Lord willing, we're going to look at the, the finality of Jesus' sacrifice and then the fruitfulness, what comes of it, that type of thing. So that's, that's the best I can do at alliteration. So I, isn't this alliteration, I guess? Whatever. So, so we're going to look first at the futility of the Mosaic Law and sacrifices, verses 1 through 4. And it starts out in verse 1 saying, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereon to perfect. So even though he, th this entire section is primarily dealing with the uh, yearly Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement sacrifice, you can see it here in the latter part of this verse, those sacrifices which they offered year by year, the Yom Kippur sacrifice. It starts out in this chapter talking about the law, the Mosaic law, and the law itself having a shadow of good things to come. Well, also, thus, uh, and we looked at the, the feast days of Israel recently, a few weeks ago. Uh, all those feast days are shadows. Uh, they are shadows of Israel, Leviticus 23, of things for Israel. But in Colossians, they're shadows of the Messiah. Well, the law itself, as we are so clearly told here, is a shadow. It's not the substance. You know, when you think of, of walking down, uh, say, a sidewalk on a very sunny day uh, and shadows are going everywhere, when you're coming to that, that corner of this big building and, and ultimately coming from that uh, corner where you can't see the substance but you see a shadow, but you know the shadow is not what you have to be concerned about. It's what is projecting the shadow. That's that person or persons that you'll run into as, as you go down to that corner and come to that corner of that building. 
on that sidewalk. Well, the law is just a sh it, it had a lot of purposes. It's not to diminish the purpose of the law. The law was God's way for Israel to live. It's his rulership over a nation. It was given to Israel, given to the Jewish people, not given to Gentiles, not given to the church, given to Israel as their ruling um, guidelines. And we've talked about this before. The law was made up of three parts. It's made up of moral commands. It's made up of ceremonial commands like Yom Kippur, Sabbath, and so on. But it's also made up of civil commands. And although you can break the law into those three parts, God never does. He always speaks of it as an entity, the law. And the law itself is a shadow of good things to come. Well, obviously, what, are the, what is the good thing to come? Jesus. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> it's not the very image of the things. So we're not, we don't find fulfillment in the law. Ultimately, by extension, we don't find forgiveness of sins then in the law. We don't find salvation in the law. The law itself is a shadow and not the very image of the things to come. And the very image of the things to come is ultimately Jesus, but what Jesus would accomplish. And then in the latter part of this verse, he gets into Yom Kippur, which is really the focus of, of the end of chapter, most of chapter 9, and into this chapter, where he says, uh, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year. And the sacrifices they offered year by year were the Yom Kippur sacrifices, and it could not make the comers thereunto perfect. Perfect there is not without sin, but forgiveness of sin. And, and we'll go on and, and read about that shortly. But what, what I want us to understand initially, and, and what the writer of Hebrews uh, lays out initially, is the law itself is a shadow of things to come. It shows us our need for Jesus. Uh, we could turn to Romans chapter 3, and we're not going to do it, uh, but in Romans chapter 3 it says, by the law came the knowledge of sin, pointed us to Jesus, Galatians 2 says the same thing, uh, and we'll look at uh, Galatians 3 says the same type of things. Uh, the law was a pointer, as it were. It could never, ever accomplish that. Uh, and the problem was not with the law. The problem was with the followers of the law. So, um, so the entire law was a shadow. Every point of the law was a shadow. Uh, the sacrifices, yes, are the focus of this passage, but the entire law was a shadow of things to come. The implication then, and, and that's what I want us initially at least to consider, is the entire law, not just the sacrifices, was to be done away. The entire law. Now, and again, the law was a shadow of things to come. The inference, the implication then, is the law itself was only a shadow when the, when the substance came, the law would be done away with. And again, what three parts make up the law? 
moral, I mean, you can put them in any order you want. Ceremonial, moral, civil. Now, what is often taught, and you'll hear it oftentimes, well, God did away with the civil part of the Mosaic Law. And some would say, yeah, and he even did away with the ceremonial part of the law. Now, some would say not on that, uh, like Sabbatarians, which the ceremonial part, we have to keep the Sabbath, that type of thing. And, and we've talked about Sabbatarians before, like Jehovah, uh, not Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists and uh, people of that ilk, as it were. But don't, don't miss it. The law is a unit. Moral, civil, ceremonial. And the entire law was done away with. The civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. And that's where uh, seemingly a lot of people trip. Uh, and I know I've done it here before, and those of you who've been around long enough remember, and maybe back to the first time I said it, because I've said it so oftentimes, how many, how many of you think that, that the Ten Commandments are um, incumbent upon uh, Christians or us today? Remember me saying that in the past? And, you did, and people did exactly what you do. You don't raise your hand, you sit silently saying... My spouse knows the answer, so I'm waiting for my spouse to give the right answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's not a trick question, but the point is, so many people, well, that means you do away with the Ten Commandments, and we can murder, we can steal, we can covet, we can disobey our parents, you know, and you go on down the whole list, that type of thing. Um, and the answer to that, we've looked at, no, 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 because... We have a new law that we're under as believers today, which is the law of Christ, and those commandments are all repeated under the law of Christ, all but the Sabbath. So the entire law was done away with. And so whether you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist, any type of Sabbatarian, they're wrong. They just don't understand. The Sabbath it was given to Israel, and we've looked at detail. I mean, we could have spent the whole time tonight revisiting this again, but if you remember, uh, I, I think it's Exodus 31. Um, it is so clear there. Pardon? Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, but it's signed to who? The to the Jews. Yeah, to Israel, to the Jewish people. Um, in Exodus chapter 31, I think it's picking up in about verse uh, 16. Um, Wherefore the children of Israel shall... Uh, not 16, I need to back up a little bit actually. Verse 12. The Lord spoke unto Moses saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath you shall keep. It is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Me and Israel throughout your generations. That you may know that I am the Lord that, that does set you apart, sanctify you. Uh, verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath therefore. It is holy unto you. You being Israel. Um, and it goes on. Verse 15, six days may work be done, but the seventh is the Sabbath rest. Um, verse 16, wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Verse 17, it's the sign between me, God, and the children of Israel forever. 
and so, so it's so very clear, and we've gone into it in detail in the past, uh, so I don't want to revisit that uh, tonight, but to, to properly understand or interpret the Bible, and, to, and, and if the subject ever comes up, when you're in a setting maybe another Bible study, maybe a Sunday school, whatever the case. Yeah, I wouldn't interrupt the preacher when he says it wrongly, uh, you know, when he's preaching from the pulpit. Uh, but if you're in a type of situation where um, interaction is allowed to some degree, and, you, you know, you should pipe up and say, no, 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 we're not under the law. The, the Ten Commandments are not for us. They were done away with. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15. I have it down here. Um, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ, for, for he is our peace, who had made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. Having abolished in his flesh, through his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, what is the enmity? The law of commandments contained in the ordinances. What does abolish mean? I mean, it doesn't mean part of it's done away with and the rest continues. That the civil has been done away with and the ceremonial has been done away with and the moral continues. No, it means what Joy said, the whole thing. The whole thing was done away with. The whole thing was abolished. And again, we, whoever we might be, Christians, have no right to divide the law where God does not divide it. But is, and and, and for, for instructional sake, you can say, well, there are ceremonial parts, there are civil parts, and there are moral parts to the law. You can do that. God doesn't do it that way. He, he always speaks of the law as an entity. In James chapter 2, if, if, you, if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of what? All the law. Every single facet of the law. So, so just be aware, um, because down the road, if the Lord tarries, you're going to be confronted here, there, or wherever by a seven-day Adventist, by a seventh-day Baptist, by a Messianic Jew who wants to keep the law. Even if they say it's not for salvation, it's just for holy living. It's not for salvation, certainly, but it's not for holy living either. Abolished means Abolished. You know, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, all the commandments contained in ordinances and rules and laws. And, and the moral part of the law, as it were, are, are commandments, aren't they? Aren't they ordinances? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet. Those are, those are ordinances. It was all done away with. When Jesus died on the cross, he did away with the law. Look at Galatians three nineteen through 25. Wherefore then serves the law? What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, the transgressions of the people, 
this really, you know, of, of Israel. Um, but then look at the next phrase. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, let's work backwards in this last phrase. Who was the promise made to? And his, and his descendants, who are the Jewish people. So the promise was made to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? So the promise was made to Israel. Uh, and, and then backing up one more, um, uh, and we haven't even considered the last phrase in this whole thing, uh, that the promise by faith of, uh, uh, one verse ahead, uh, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Who is the seed, or what, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say who, maybe it's a what, or is it a who? It's a who, it's a who. Uh, who is the seed to come? Jesus. And who is he coming to? If you put these two phrases together, uh, in, uh, in um, verse 19, uh, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. To the Jewish people, to Israel. So the seed had to come to the Jewish people. So when did the seed, Jesus, come to the Jewish people? 2,000 years ago. First century, right? Okay. Now take the first phrase of Galatians 3.19. Not wherefore then serves the law. Uh, it was added because uh, it was added because of transgressions, and maybe I should have emphasized this next word, until. Now, until, or till in the King James, but if you have another translation, my guess you have until, right? Somebody here? New King James? I know we're reading out of the sheet, so you may not have it open. But it's a, it means until. Well, until is a time word. In other words, at a certain point in time, it'll stop, right? So the law, we are told, was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. Which implies what at, that, at this point? When the seed comes, what happens to the law? Goes away abolished. Use the Ephesians terminology. Okay? Now, look at the last part of verse 19. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Um, <clears throat> who was the mediator that gave the law to Israel? Moses. Moses. Where did Moses get the law from? From angels. I mean, it came from God to angels, to Moses, to the people, to Israel. Okay? But the, what I want you to see in verse 19, the law was added uh, because of until Jesus would come. So the inference of this, the implication of this, is that then when Jesus came, the law would be done away with. And perhaps what I should have done is put Galatians prior to Ephesians, because in Ephesians it does tell us it was abolished. But let's go on. Verse 22. <clears throat> now, we skip 20 and 21, not because they're not important, um, but I want to focus in on the abolishment of the law, the law being done away with. Uh, 20 and 21 basically says, 
that the law is not against the promises of God, that if, there's any, if there was a law given that would, could have given righteousness, verily righteousness would have come by the Mosaic law. In other words, if you're looking for some kind of work system to get to heaven, God gave that system. It's the Mosaic law. And if you could keep the Mosaic law perfectly from the day you were born to the day you die, you would go to heaven. Verse 22. But the scripture concluded all under sin. So nobody keeps the law perfectly. Only one person kept the law perfectly. Jesus. So as a man, Jesus had every right to go straight to heaven. He didn't need a substitute. Didn't need a sacrifice. Scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Um, the promise ultimately is to be with God, eternal life. Um, by faith, it comes through faith in, in Jesus Christ, would be given to them that believe. You have to believe to get that promise. You have to uh, accept the Lord. Then verse 23, but before faith came. Now, faith, before faith came, faith here is speaking about a person, Jesus. So it's personalizing faith. So before Jesus came, before faith came, um, and in a sense, Jesus is the embodiment of faith, as it were, because when we get saved, we have to put our faith, our trust in your church, your baptism, yourself, put your trust in Jesus. Before faith came, we were kept up under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Before Jesus came, we're under the law. And he's speaking to the Judaizers. These are Jewish people he's speaking to here. And then in verse 24, um, <clears throat> well, let me, the last part of verse 22. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up onto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. After what? Well, faith is Jesus, and Jesus would be revealed. Uh, we were kept under the Lord, uh, shut up onto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. I think afterwards here has to be speaking at the end of the period of the law. The law. And isn't it exactly what happened when Jesus, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, when Jesus died, what happened to the law? Abolished, done away with, completely. But before faith came, before Jesus came, they were kept up under the law, uh, waiting for that individual to come, the Messiah, Jesus, um, which would afterwards be revealed when the law was ultimately would be done away with. So what's the purpose of the law? Uh, it goes back to the law in verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law is not a works system to get to heaven. The problem being, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or as verse 23, 2 says, the scripture concluded all under sin. So the law points people to a savior. The law shows people that they are imperfect, they are sinners, they have transgressed God's commandments, and they're in need of deliverance. They're in need of a savior. So the law is a schoolmaster. Um, and the schoolmaster here is one who, who would bring the child actually to school. The law brings us to the Savior. Many people have said, 
It's easy to get someone saved. It's difficult to get someone lost. Especially in the culture that we live in, when they know nothing about the Bible, when everything is A-OK, situational ethics. You know, the, 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 the phrase that, one of the phrases that struck me with this Kavanaugh fiasco was, um, uh, this is my, my truth I want to share, my truth. No, 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 no. I don't have a truth, and April doesn't have a truth, and you don't have a truth, and we all don't have, there's only, the truth is truth. It's universal. And, and there's, there's no my truth versus Kavanaugh's truth. One is right, one is wrong. They're diametrically opposed. Uh, but in the world we live in today, that's not the way mo a lot of people look at it. You know, because sin is no longer sin. You know, it, it may be good for me, it may not be good for you because you don't want to do it, that's fine, but you can't judge me. So it's very difficult in, in the climate that we live, the cultural climate that we live today, to get somebody lost. Because uh, they don't read the Bible. They oftentimes don't believe in God, but faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, so it's, it's difficult to get someone say If they truly... Uh, see their, their lost condition before holy God, they're going to flee to the Savior. And that takes time. So, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith, not works, by faith. But then notice verse 25. But after that faith has come, and again, faith here is a person, Jesus. After Jesus has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. What is the schoolmaster? The law. I mean, how much clearer could it be? The laws are schoolmaster. It was to point people to the need of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. And you lived under it, and you could see how onerous it was with all the rules and the regulations that you broke regularly, not only in practice, but in um, not doing a lot of it. Uh, but when the schoolmaster, uh, ultimately, uh, the, the Jesus came, the schoolmaster was done away, which is the law. We're no longer under the law. That's what it's saying in verse 25. Once Jesus came and died for the sins and provided the substitute, we are no longer under the law. It's abolished, that type of thing. Uh, I'm always astounded at people who want to, and that's just Satan at work. You know, Satan wants to convince people what? You know, it's, it's you, know, you know, yeah, you got to believe in God, but you got to do something too. You know, I, I remember when, when I first, right after I first got saved, and my, and my father, who didn't know anything about the Bible, unfortunately, um, and I was living by faith and so on, and he said, but you do know the Bible says, he told me, that God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> and I said, can you show me that in the Bible? He changed the subject real quick. That is, I don't know who came up with that phrase. Okay, thank you. Well, there you go. There's, I got to keep them around. How did you know that? Smart. Buzz is smart. That's, that's, that's Buzz, those who are watching on, online. 
Buzz, Buzz, oh, so now he's giving credit where it rightfully belongs. It belongs to his wife, Jennifer. Okay. So we'll appreciate you giving credit where you go. Benjamin Franklin came up with God helps those who help. That's not biblical. That's not biblical um, at all. So it's by, through, faith. Okay? We're no longer under schoolmaster. Schoolmaster's law. Very, very clear. One other passage. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Do I need to, to write a letter commending someone or do I need to have someone write a letter commending me about my character and what it is? Then the Apostle Paul says this. <coughs> you are our letters, our epistles. Epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. He's talking to believers and he says, I don't need to write a letter telling, you know, if you are truly saved, your life radically changes. And, and what Paul is saying here is you, you, your life changes. And, and it's a testimony to all those out. You, you are written on your heart uh, and everybody can read you. Now, it's a little bit more difficult if you were five years old and accepted the Lord and grew up in a Christian family and, and lived a pristine life all your life and that type of thing and uh, so on. <clears throat> but it, it, it's a lot easier for people to read you if you live like I did, or Bob. Let me use Bob. Bob's a great example for many, many years. Can I use you as an example, Bob? I don't need your permission, but I'm going to use you anyway. Bob lived as a heathen for so many years, and I did too. Uh, we were saved later at life, right, Bob? How old were you, Bob? <laughs> How old were you when you were saved? Oh, you were, you were a young man. You hardly had time to get into any problems. Um, I was... Tw <laughs> okay, this... Okay, you don't have... No, this is not confessing to, a, you know... No, 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 no. We don't need that, please. So. <laughs> it, is being it is being recorded, though, understand. I was saved at 27. I won't use Bob as an illustration. And, and my life was a mess prior to that. And people just were, were shocked at the transformation that took place in my life. Um, I, I know a number of years late, um, I have... Two brothers, one sister, um, and, and for good parts of their life, their lives were um, <clears throat> a wreck. <laughs> I could put it like that. Uh, and I know when my mom came and stayed with us, when Deborah, our daughter, was, what, maybe two or three or something like that, uh, which goes back close to 30 years ago, uh, after she left, and... and both my brothers had been or were in divorces and my, my twin brother, kids were a mess and my, and my sister, you know. And she wrote a letter and said, you know, I don't know what it is. She says, but I am so thankful 
to see that one of my children has their life together. You can credit Jesus or whatever you want to credit, but I'm just so thankful. She could see the difference in, in, in our life and that type of thing. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, he says, when, when you get saved, and remember, in the first century, nobody was, was raised in a Christian home in the first century because Christian homes were pretty much non-existent. Um, Corinthians being one of the earlier books that are written, um, there were Christian homes, but you didn't grow up, you know, not like it is today. Most people who got saved were, were older initially. It's just logical, obvious, that type of thing. Um, he's speaking to those who had a transformative uh, experience in their life when they met Jesus. That's everybody who gets saved. So we don't have to write a letter because people can just see in your life the difference of what's taking place. Verse 3, for as much as you are manifestly declared to be the, the epistle, the letter of Christ, ministered by us, we may have had a part in bringing you to the Lord, uh, but you are a living testimony. You are a, you are a living letter of what Jesus has done into your right. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. This is not on a parchment. This is not on a piece of paper with ink. Uh, no, this, you're a letter. You're an epistle, which means letter uh, written with the spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone even, which would be the Ten Commandments, but in fleshly tables of the heart. The spirit of God touched your heart, changed your life, and people can read you. And, and they're reading a changed life. They're seeing... Uh, you're, you were in darkness, now you're in light. And, and they're seeing this difference. So I don't need to give you a letter. People can see in your life the difference that's taken place. Uh, verse 4, And such trust have we through Christ to God word. And I may have skipped verse 2. Your epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men, saying the same type of thing. But our trust is, is through Christ to Godward. Then verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. So it's not in us. It's not us changing our life. It's not us determining, hey, my life has been a mess for 27 years. Maybe 23. I'll forget the first four years of life. Uh, when I was a baby, uh, but regardless, you know, and so now I need to reform. I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to change my happenings. I'm going to change my doings. I'm going to reform. That's religion. So it, it, what, it's not what you do. It's not that you're sufficient of yourself to think anything as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. This is a supernatural work. This is a, a miracle that takes place in our life. Who, verse 6, also made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So we are now able ministers of the New Testament. It's not a book he's talking about. It's a relationship. We are, we are ambassadors for Christ that it will ultimately say later on in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are ambassadors for Christ, ministering for him. We are able uh, ministers of the New Testament, that we are able to tell people that you can have a relationship with God through what Jesus did. 
<clears throat> not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And the letter here goes back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, or any kind of written law that you try to follow, will ultimately do what in your life? Destroy you, kill you, can't give you life. Look at verse 7. The Spirit gives life, the end of verse 6. If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones. Now, what is he speaking about? What was written and engraven in stones specifically? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are called the ministration of death. Can the Ten Commandments then give life? No. They can only give you death. Because it's, 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 it's a, it's a, you try to keep it, you can't do it. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in the stones, was glorious, was the Ten Commandments glorious, impressive, perfect? Yeah. yeah the problem, again, is not with the law, not with the Ten Commandments. The problem is with the doers, those who attempt to keep it. So the Ten Commandments was glorious, and even to the point, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with. So even the children of Israel, when Moses got the law, they couldn't look on his countenance because how he glowed, well, because he had been in the presence of God and got the Ten Commandments. Uh, they couldn't look, but that glory was to be done away with. Now, it's not just the glory that Moses had, but it's the glory of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is glorious, and that glory, i.e., the Ten Commandments, is to be done away. Now, when is the Ten Commandments going to be done away with? When Jesus came. Now, the Ten Commandments, again, is part of the law. The whole law is being done away, but here he's specifically dealing with these because a lot of people think, you know, the Ten Commandments are the most important parts of the law. Um, certainly they're important. Those are the ten that God chose to put on tables of stone. Um, but that does not say that the rest of the law was unimportant. If you could keep all the Ten Commandments but, but broke the rest of the law, what would happen to you? You'd still die. You'd still go to hell. So Then it goes on. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather or more glorious? <clears throat> if the Ten Commandments was glorious, and that was the ministration of death, don't you think the ministration of the Spirit would be even more glorious? Because the Spirit, it said back at the end of verse 6, gives what? Life. It's more glorious. Verse 9, for if the ministration of condemnation be glory. Now, what is the ministration of condemnation? What is it speaking of here? The law. And even specifically, you could say the Ten Commandments, but the law, yes. The law, or the Ten Commandments more specifically here, <coughs> is called the ministration of death and the ministration of condemnation. Do you really want to stand before God and say, Lord, I, I tried the best I could to keep the law. 
and, and yeah, and and yeah, I didn't keep all of it, you know, but I, I did the best I could. So, you, so really, God, you should let me into heaven. And God's just, you know, God may point that person to Second uh, Corinthians chapter three and say, "Don't you understand? I told you that the Ten Commandments was the ministration of death. It condemns you. It doesn't save you. It doesn't give you life. That's all God has to say." It's the ministry of condemnation. It's still glory, because it's from God. Much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. That's the ministration of the Spirit, which gives us righteousness. It, it, it exceeds in glory exponentially greater than the law. The law was glorious, but could only bring death and condemnation. The ministry of the Spirit was so much more glorious because it wouldn't bring us death, it would bring us life. It wouldn't bring us condemnation, it would bring us righteousness. Then verse 10. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. So what was made glorious? The law. And, and even more specifically, the Ten Commandments here, but representative of the whole law. That was made glorious, but it had no glory in this respect. What was that respect? By reason of the glory that excels. What was the glory that excelled? The ministry of the Spirit that would change a life internally that people could read because they would see that which was written on our hearts. That is amazing. That is more glorious. That is a much greater testimony because the law condemns and gives death. Then look at verse 11. For if that which is done away was glorious. What was done away? The law. It was still glorious, but it was done away. The law is made up of what? Three parts. Moral, civil, ceremonial. The law was done away. Every part of it was thou shalt not murder under the Ten Commandments done away. Yes. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt honor thy mother and father. Thou shalt, um, uh, what are some of the, I can't remember now. You know, the rest of the Ten Commandments, you all know them. So um, all of it was done away. Uh, if that was done, it was much more that which remains. And what remains? Faith, but the Spirit's ministration, the Spirit's work in our life. And, and the Spirit of God has given us the, the law of Christ and that which remains. But what I want you to see, the Ten Commandments were done away. By extension, the entire law was done away, Right? That's what verse 1 is saying. That's what the... And, and, and there's a host of people in the world, that say, Christians, who say we have, you know, the, the Mosaic Law is still incumbent upon us, maybe not the, the civil, maybe not the ceremonial, but the law, uh, the moral part of it is, and, and since the Ten Commandments is incumbent upon us, uh, those moral parts of it, uh, and the Sabbath is involved in the moral part, that means uh, we have to keep the Sabbath as well, uh, and, and wrong. 
the entire law is done away with in Jesus. We're not under the law. If you want to keep the law, you've got to keep the whole law. That means you better go every year to Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple and offer a Yom Kippur sacrifice. That means you have to not mix different types of material in your clothing. How many of you are wearing 40% polyester and 60% cotton? I don't know. You, know. you know, you can't do that under the law. Or, you know, don't look at your text. It's not that important. We're not under the law. Uh, you know, you don't mix, the, you know, there's so many rules. So if you want to keep any part of the law, you have to keep the whole, the whole law was done away with. Don't let anybody try to talk you out of it. The scriptures are very, very clear on it. That's what verse 1, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comer thereon to perfect. The, the whole inference of this verse is the law is going to be done away with. It's just a shadow. Okay, go to verse 2. And again, this builds on the end of verse 1, where it says, those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereon to perfect. In other words, the Yom Kippur sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, could never make anybody perfect in the eyes of God. And just by the very logic, if it did, why would you need to do it again? You wouldn't need to do it again. Verse 2 is, de develops that argument. For then, would they have not ceased to be offered? I mean, if it made you perfect before God, wouldn't then you just cease to offer those offerings? Well, that's logical, certainly. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Not that you wouldn't realize that you're a sinner or anything, but no more conscience that you are plagued by the guilt of sin, that it's not forgiven. See, if, if you are made perfect in the sight of God, if you are forgiven your sins by the Yom Kippur sacrifice, you wouldn't need to have another Yom Kippur sacrifice next year because you, you know your sins are forgiven. You know you are perfect before God. You are right for God, before God. But, but then in verse 3, but in those sacrifices, the Yom Kippur sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. It just reminds the people, hey, you know, we still got a problem. We still got a sin problem. That's why we got to offer this sacrifice again. And every year, it brought to their attention, you know, your sin problem has not been resolved. Why? Verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So ask yourself this If it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats took away sins, in the Mosaic economy, and that's, that's a better way to put it than the Old Testament economy, because when you think Old Testament, you think of a book. In the Mosaic economy of Israel, when they offered in good faith I'm not talking about the hypocrites, that Isaiah chapter 1, we're not going to look at these verses, uh, or Amos chapter 5 talks about the hypocrisy of Israel, where God was fed up with their sacrifices in their holy days because they were so hypocritical. What about the Israelites who came in good faith 
trusting in God and wanting to please God by offering those Yom Kippur sacrifice and the others, did they find forgiveness of sins through that Yom Kippur sacrifice? What's it say in verse 4? It's not possible. No, they never did. That the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. No Yom Kippur sacrifice. No daily sacrifice. No sacrifice of any type of animal, any blood of any bull or of any goat or of any that could take away sins. It just will not, cannot, does not happen. Isaiah, Moses, Jeremiah, any, any godly Israelite, when they brought those sacrifices, it did not forgive their sins. So there's a, where are our sins forgiven? Jesus. And by faith, they, what they understood is that God would provide that substitute for them. We looked at that. Didn't we look at that recently? You know, they knew the promise and they looked forward. They didn't understand as much as we do, certainly. But that's where their faith was. In God, through his promised one to forgive sins. Not in those animals. Just like today. And they said, it'll go on here. You know, we're, we're forgiven by our acceptance of Jesus. And our sins are forgiven. Is there anything that we have to do afterwards to earn that forgiveness? Don't we have to offer a Yom Kippur sacrifice? Don't we have to partake in communion, the Lord's table? Doesn't that require to get forgiveness of sins or make sure we have it? No. No. Justification is a one-time act, a judicial act, where you pass from darkness to light, when you are recognized by God as perfect, seated in the heavenlies, Ephesians chapter 1, spiritually speaking. There's nothing that you do after now. Are there things that God wants you to do? Yeah. Will that add one iota to your salvation? No. Not one. And those, even a, a faithful Israelite, Offering, a blood offering. He knew that that animal didn't cleanse their sin. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That brings us to the fitness of Jesus' sacrifice. Wherefore, verse 5, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body has thou prepared me. When he comes into the world, who's it referring to? Jesus. When you come into the world, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not. God, God was not off interested in, in, in the blood of bullocks and goats and lambs and that type of thing. But a body, thou hast prepared me. Now, I, I've put down here verse 6. This is a quote from Psalm 40, verse 6. Here is what Psalm 40, verse 6 says. Now, uh, sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. If you notice in Hebrews verse 5, 10, 5, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. But in the Hebrews verse it says, but a body hast thou prepared me. Notice what it says in, in the Psalm 40, verse 6 verse. Mine ears hast thou opened. 
Burnt offering and sin offering has thou not required. Mine ear. Completely different. And he's quoting from Psalm 40, verse 6. Now, the reason being is the Septuagint. When you see LXX stands for Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the scriptures some two to three hundred years uh, prior to the time of Jesus. A bunch of rabbis got together and they wanted to put the, uh, the earlier scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, into the common language of the people, which was Greek. And so they, the, the Septuagint. And Septuagint translates it, um, <clears throat> the following. They substituted Soma, body, for Atia, ear. And they, <clears throat> the Septuagint writers, translated it, sacrifice and offering uh, thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Where in the original Psalm 40, it says, mine ear is ear, thou holden. Now, why the difference? Why the difference between mine ears as though opened, and a, and a body as thou prepared me. Or, is there a difference? Certainly it's not the, the same translation. So why the difference? Okay, I'm not going to... I'm going to tell you why the difference. <laughs> look, look at Exodus chapter 21. We do need to go back there. Because Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, deals with mine ears as thou opened. And this is what it references. Exodus 21, in verses 1 through 6. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So he's talking about a slave, right? So if you purchase a, a Jewish slave, a servant, he serves you for six years, or, or she, as the case might be, uh, and at the end of that period, in the seventh, uh, that servant can leave for free. Doesn't cost anything. If he came in by himself, he should go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master had given him a wife, and she had borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. He should go out by himself. So don't get married in those six years. Don't have any children because you're leaving them behind. I mean, if you do have a wife and you have a... You know, if you bring a wife into this bargain, you get the wife out of the bargain. If you bring a wife and children in, you get the wife and children going out. But if you go in single and get married and have kids, you can leave at the end, but the kids and the wife stays. Okay? Verse 5. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. I don't want to leave. See, servanthood in Israel was not as harsh as it was, for example, perhaps in early modern America. And it wasn't oftentimes harsh in early America, from what I understand. I mean, slavery is slavery, I understand. Uh, but 
a, a good slave owner, even in the South, wherever it was in America, would treat his uh, slaves well. They did that in Israel. And so the servant himself, or the slave, if you want to call him, because that's what he was, if he said, I love my master, he's treated me well, he's fed me, he's given me uh, a roof over my head, he's taken care of my health and my family and clothing and all of that, you know, I don't want to leave, he's treated me so well, I love my master. I love my wife, I don't want to leave my wife, my children I love. I don't want to leave. I, I, I can get free, I, I don't want to leave. I want to stay then as my master's servant. Then, verse 6, his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his heir through with an awl, and shall, he shall serve him for ever. So, if the servant says, I, I love my master, I realize the best thing for me is to stay. I keep my wife, I keep my kids who I love. I want to stay because I love my master. He's treated me so well, I understand that. So the master says, okay, <clears throat> I want to take you before the judges of the community, and then you put your earlobe against the doorpost. And you take a, an awl, you know, a little sharp, you know, awl. <laughs> so, uh, and, and you bore a hole in his earlobe, and they put some kind of ring in it, uh, showing that this man has willingly submitted to his master and said, this testifies that I willingly have given myself to my master for the rest of my life because I know that's the best thing for me. Now, consider what Jesus did. Verse 5, when he comes into the world, <clears throat> sacrifice and offerings that wood is not but a body as thou prepared me. Jesus is the servant of God. He's the slave of God, right? In Isaiah. Was, did Jesus love the Father? Was Jesus willing to submit himself to everything the Father wanted him to do? You know, look at John 5.30, for example, just one verse. I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus willingly came. And God prepared a body, and Jesus willingly came and took that body and, and, and in love to the Father, in love for, for, for the people around him, he served God, totally willing to do whatever his Father told him to do. The servant, the Hebrew servant, same way. When he said, I will not go free, I love my master, I know he loves me. I love my wife. I love my children. I want the best for them. I need to stay. And so this shows that I have willingly given myself completely, totally, my, my whole body, as it were. This, 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 this hole in my ear shows that, that he is the one I want to follow. It's saying the exact same thing. And... The writers took the, the Greek translation. The, the rabbis decided to use that verse or that passage, that phrase from Exodus 21, that really says the exact same thing. 
In other words, this is, this is a, a willful commitment of yourself to put yourself under the submission of another. That's exactly what Jesus did. It's, saying, it's like six and half a dozen saying the same thing. Then in verse 6, it says this. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Does God have any pleasure in, in, in the death of animals? No. But animals don't have a, have a spirit. You know, the, from dust to dust literally applies to animals. They don't have to go to heaven. I know you have dogs, uh, really just, uh, or cats maybe, I don't know. But anyway, God was not happy with the sacrifices, but they were for a purpose. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. Now, you notice know sacrifices is italicized there. Um, it's fine the way it reads, but sin itself is the same word we looked at before, remember? Uh, hamartia. Uh, and, the, and the one that really I don't like is in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where uh, he became sin who knew no sin. Isn't that how it reads, you know, speaking of Jesus? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And, and it gives the impression that Jesus became sin. No, no, that's the same Greek word. We talked about this, I think, last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was. No, it's the same word here. Uh, and, and it's better here because they added sacrifices in italics. They should have added it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, the best way that, that, that this should read is sin offering. Uh, it's not sacrifices for sin. And, and it's not that sacrifices for sin is wrong. It's not. But sin offerings is more consistent with other uses in the Bible. And we looked at that when we looked at Hebrews 9, 16 through 28. The verse should read, In burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast had no pleasure. That's how it should read. In burnt offerings and sin offerings. Now, the King James translator added sacrifices. Well, a sin offering is a sacrifice for sin, right? You know, but if, if they should have been consistent. So it's not wrong, but it's not consistent. Uh, and they really messed it up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So next time, again, I said this two weeks ago or last week, whatever it was, next time you sing that song, that hymn that says, he became sin, that, you know, don't sing it or add a word. You know, sin offering. He became a sin offering and, and, and yell it out. So you teach everybody around you that Jesus did not become sin. He became a sin offering. Big difference. So, um, and if they kick you out of the church, don't blame me. Um, so, okay, look at verse 7. <coughs> then said I, <coughs> lo, I come. <coughs> In the volume of the book, it is written to me to do thy will, O God. I is Jesus. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written to me. What book is it referring to? The Tanakh. <clears throat> From Genesis to Second Chronicles. Or Genesis to Malachi, if you like that. Look what John 5, 20, 39 says. Search the scriptures, Jesus said. For in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. When Jesus said that, what were the scriptures? The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. John 5, 46. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. 
Can we find Jesus in the five books of, of Moses? That's what it says. Certainly we can. Acts 10.43. To him, Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. The, 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 the earlier scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is replete, full of prophecies of Jesus. Many of them. Now, <clears throat> turn to the other, your last page. We're not going to read this whole thing. You read it later. The Science of Probability in Messianic Prophecy. This was done years ago by uh, Peter Stoner, who was Professor Emeritus of Science at Westminster College. And he calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. Uh, these estimates, I'm reading now about the fifth line down, these estimates were worked out by 12 different classes representing some 600 college students. Students carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and examined the various, various circumstances which might indicate that men had conspired to give, uh, uh, together to fulfill a particular prophecy. Now, hold yourself there. On the back side, it lists eight of the prophecies that they considered. They considered more of that, but how they considered it and they, the odds they came up with. And for example, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. The average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the present, 1958, when the book was written, divided by the average population of the earth during the same period. 7,000, uh, which would be um, 2 billion divided by 7,150,000. That was the population of Bethlehem. Uh, the average population and the population of the time comes out 2.8 times 10. That should be to the fifth power. I didn't put that. Um, unfortunately, I should have put it in a superscript. 10 to the fifth power, not 103. Um, that's very low odds. Uh, or high odds, maybe that's what, what, which word I'm looking at. That's very difficult to fulfill. And, and all of these, when, unfortunately, and, and when, I, when I copied it over, unfortunately, I didn't check it close enough. The next one, a messenger will prepare, it's 1 times 10 to the third power. The next one, 1 times 10 to the second, and so on, all the way down. It's not 103, 102, 103, 103, and so on. It's 10 to the whatever power, so you'll understand. Uh, then you can read all of this later. This is how they did it with all the students, and it was verified, by the way, by uh, uh, a scientific um, entity. Um, so what he did, however, then Professor Stoner took their estimates, made them even more conservative. He also encouraged other skeptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally. He submitted his figures for review <coughs> to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. A and it goes on. Now, in, in bold there. After examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man Fulfilling all, all eight prophecies was one in ten to the seventeenth power. How large is that number? That's ten with seventeen zeros uh, after that. 
or one with 17 zeros. Stoner gave this illustration. If you mark one of 10 tickets, place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10, right? Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. <clears throat> they will cover all of the state of Texas two feet deep. Mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man. Tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes. But he miss, must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would have he of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies, having them all come, to, uh, come true in any one man from their day to the present time, proving they wrote them to their own in their own wisdom. One to the times 10 to the 17th power. But then he goes on. What happens if you take 48 prophecies? This is mind-blowing. How large, this is the last paragraph, how large is the number one, uh, 10 to the 157th power? That's 48 prophecies. Jesus' first coming was over 100 prophecies. But he's dealing with 48. Stoner gave an illustration of this number using electrons. Electrons are very small objects. They're smaller than atoms. It would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power of them laid side by side to make one inch. Wow, that's a lot of electrons. Even if we counted 250 of these electrons each minute and counted day and night, it would still take 19 million years just to count a line of electrons one inch long. Think about that. With this introduction, let us go back to our chance of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. <coughs> let us suppose that we're taking this number of electrons, marking one, thoroughly stirring it into the whole mass, then blindfolding a man, letting him try to find the right one. What chance does he find, uh, has of finding the right one? What kind of pile will this number of electrons make? May make an inconceivably large volume. The distance from our system of stars or galaxy to the next uh, nearest one is nearly 1,500,000 1, light years. That is the distance that light will travel in 1,500,000 years going 186,000 miles each and every second. You swallowing this? You got this? Then he goes on. The distance is so great that every man, woman, and child in the U.S., United States, 200 million of them, that was back then, in 58, has a library of 65,000 volumes. And you collected every book in all of these libraries uh, and then started on this journey of 1,500,000 light years, decided to place one letter from one of the books on each mile. Uh, if the V was the first word of the first book, you would put the T on the first mile, H on the second, E on the third, and so on. And then leave a mile blank without a letter and start the next word in the same manner. Before you complete your journey, you will use up every letter in every book of every one of the libraries and have to call for more. It's astronomical. He closed this way. Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God, is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. When Jesus said, in the volume of the book, it is written to me, 
there are dozens and dozens of prophecies. Verses 8 and 9 as we close. Above when he said, sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and, and offerings for sin, that what is not. God didn't want those. Those were a shadow. Those were a picture. Neither has pleasure therein, <coughs> which are offered by the law. Then said he, Jesus, lo, I come to do your will, God. He takes away the first. What's the first? <coughs> the law. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He takes away the Mosaic covenant that he may establish the new covenant, the relationship that God has with individuals through Jesus. <coughs> Jesus, there's no other Savior. There's no other Messiah. The futility of the, of the Mosaic law Jesus fulfilled every prophecy of the first coming. He fits the bill. He meets the requirement that God has for salvation. That's why Jesus is so much better than the Yom Kippur sacrifice, the law, and the priests of the Old Testament. The futility of the law <clears throat> the fitness of Jesus. A couple of few weeks, we're going to look at the finality of his sacrifice and the fruitfulness of it. Any questions before we pray? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word of God. May we never, ever entertain the thought that we're under the law. It's a reproach to the name of Jesus. It's a reproach to what he has done. He made the way to heaven when he came. And he did away. He abolished the law of God. We are no longer under the Mosaic law. It was a shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. And he met every requirement, Father, that you had for a perfect substitute Savior. Thank you for that. May we always recognize and understand that reality. That it's Jesus. It's not the law. Any law. It's Jesus. We ask your blessings upon uh, this word. We ask your blessings on our fellowship and the food. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.